From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Uh, you know, I'm like, here we go again. I can't. And I, I think I'm scarred by discos and weddings. And you think, what is it about you that killing you was essential to Western civilization? This business of the team being, you know, we are one and unification. But sure, they're segregating people immediately with that price. Well, we That's are not true. one. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, a remarkable story behind Schindler's List. Who are you going to call when the ghost bus doesn't come? And where have all the Bridgets gone? That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that is Bridget, breeds, bridie, and has the cloak to prove it. The musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show, started with some desk-thumping advice. If you want to get ahead in the workplace, meanwhile, even if you're working from home, even better, brag like an American. That's what they're saying now. D- be, don't be so self-deprecating. Remember we spoke to Joseph O'Connor the other day about this. Uh, I was telling him about that line from his book where he said self-deprecation is a sort of vanity where you're saying, I look big in this, don't I? He said, no, you look amazing. So you, when you put yourself down, you really want somebody to bring you up. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a cry for help. It's, it's an attention-seeking exercise. It's something I've been doing for years. And they're saying that in, in, in you know, UK particularly, but Ireland, I think we suffer, for, for, suffer from the same thing of over self-deprecation. I'm terrible at this. I can't do that. I'll never be good at this. And I say, well, take a leaf out of the American book, which says, you know, you've got this. We can do this. I'm great at this. I did that. I achieved that. The only problem with that, I suppose, is that there is a fine line between, I always say it to people, a fine line between confidence and cockiness. No one likes a, a cocky person um, and yet you have time for a confident person, it's just, it's, it's the difference. It's like the, the arrogant person who has nothing to be arrogant about. That's one of my great mysteries in life, when you see somebody going, <laughs> being really haughty, and, you say, and you're haughty on the basis that you're backing up this arrogance with nothing. Well, that's, that's the weirdest arrogance of all. That's just parental uh, excessive love, probably. But either way, there's a misconception we're told that talking about your work is not part of your job, but it is. It makes you a good communicator and that people who are fearful of bragging were unlikely to do themselves harm by highlighting their achievements. There is a place for self-deprecation, but it needs to be used sparingly. If you're, you rely on it as a mechanism, it can undercut you. And, you know, you see that with people. Some people say I'm and they constantly put themselves down as a sort of as a, a mechanism. And then it becomes a little clawing little over the top and you go, okay, no, we, we got it the first time, but then the 10th time we said you're terrible at something that you're actually pretty good at, it can get a little bit annoying. Bragging is often associated with arrogance, taking credit where it may not be due, exaggeration and other unreliable traits. However, praising oneself is a better reframing. Reframing, eh? Listen, no one's better at reframing than me, let me tell you. I could reframe the Mona Lisa and people would gasp and ooh and ah. Seriously, I'm not good. Are we convinced yet? Okay, maybe I'm a bad American. Unlike, say, Google. What a link. Google facing job cuts. And you would think Google very right on in the workplace and kind of, we hear you, we see you, um, sort of vibe. And now that they're in a little bit of bother, what are they cutting? Director of Mental Health and Wellbeing. You just think they would, I would have thought they'd be a bit more health and well-being you know there's a basketball hoop and a packet of fig rolls you know it's got that in a beanbag that's what I think of Google Workplace it's all very 
you know, a snooker table. Said, Somebody do some work. <laughs> no, but they're, I mean, that's all part of it. It's, it's that, it's the atmosphere. <laughs> it's the work atmosphere. <laughs> and, uh, how's your mental health? And, uh, and now not the, the, the cost cutting is <laughs> the first thing to go, mental health and well-being. I just think there's something, look, I know I'm being um, a little jaundiced in my view of this, but it's, it's just, <laughs> I think there's something peculiar about that. The movie Grease, movie, musical, whatever you want to call it, a lot of people like it. It wouldn't be in my top 300, but it's a lot of people are into it. No, but it's not for me. It, it's, it's fine. I know the music. I think I've just heard it so many times and just I'm exhausted by it. Uh, willa, willa, willa. You know, I'm like, here we go again. I can't. And I, I think I'm scarred by discos and the weddings by Grease, any song from Grease. I, I can't. Um, but Paramount Plus have released a trailer and it's uh, for, for a 10 episode spin-off from the movie called Grease, the Rise, sorry, Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies. So this is the, the gang. I mean, this is going to be great news for fans of Grease. Grease has provided a lot of enjoyment and uh, love and crack for, I always think in, in musical societies love performing Grease and maybe um, schools and stuff like that before. It was kind of nearly kind of cancelled at one stage I think it's a pretty full on um, but it's still going obviously and uh, there's uh, throughout the series viewers will get to explore the evolution of the pink ladies <laughs> I always think pink ladies for me now is an apple but it, obviously for these guys it's like a, a musical 10 part series about an apple it's set in an orchard the musical pickers of the apples no just making that up obviously it's about the spin off from Greece uh, a clique of straight talking uh, high school girls made famous by Stockard Channing and Didi Khan in their roles as Rizzo and Frenchie. And they'll be singing, dancing, romance, iconic fashion, uh, <laughs> and an occasional fight or two. Is that a real text <laughs> as opposed to an unreal text? Will you play a Grease song, please? Absolutely not. You obviously missed the last five minutes. I mean, you know, no. But you know what? You can, you can when, at one minute past ten, you can play the whole album at home in the kitchen and, and I won't stop you. So go for it. How to make friends and influence people Tubbs on air style. Take your grease suggestion and shove it, pal. But hey, wait to do the shoving until the show's over, okay? Outstanding. Anyway, time to get down with the kids. Yes, it's TikTok time. What is lucky girl syndrome? It's a new TikTok manifestation trend. Uh, and the idea is that this is, let's talk about manifestation for a moment. This is something that I really knew nothing about until I'm going to blame Barry Kogan. Barry Kogan came in, certainly on the TV show, uh, talking about the list he wrote of directors he wanted to work with, actors he wanted to work with, awards he wanted to win. He's worked with all the directors, all the actors and won all the awards. Nominated for an Oscar now. So is he, is, is he doing something different or is he just a very talented man who just puts stuff on paper and it's just it's just chance, or is there something in this idea of manifestation? And this this is lucky girl syndrome is a form of manifestation. Apparently, TikTok users have claimed that the scientifically dubious uh, technique of positive affirma affirmation will guaranteed success, guaranteed success and prosperity. Thousands of videos claiming that the trend has benefited them in their careers and finances or living situations. The trend revolves around the claim that if you chant, so we all wake up this morning or tomorrow morning because it's too late now because I'm here. But if I was to wake up tomorrow morning and say the following, I am the luckiest person alive. Just say it again and again. I am the luckiest person alive. I am the, I am the luckiest person 
alive. I'm the luckiest person alive. I'm the luckiest person. Just say it again and again and again. It's a daily affirmation that can lead to creating the lifestyle that you desire. That's could it work. I mean, if it works for you, or is it going to happen anyway? People use manifestation techniques as a way of turning their dreams into reality. It involves people reciting these affirmations with the belief that they will bring good fortune into their lives. People post uh, videos of their affirmations, typically along the lines of, I'm so lucky, or everything works out for me, or I always get what I want. That, that would get on my nerves if people were posting that all the time. <laughs> They're bragging. They're being American. But, uh, you know, American is positive too. They, they, I, I kind of like the American sass sometimes. You know, they... they, they celebrate ambition they they, they 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 don't belittle somebody who's who's trying it trying um in a way that we tend to sometimes do too much yep wait what happened to the tiktok angle did we miss that or oh no hang on here it is a psychologist claims that lucky girl syndrome is related to confirmation bias which is the tendency to process new information as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. Under this bias, you remember the thing that, uh, the, the, sorry, you remember the times things did work out in your favour and overlook the times they don't. Okay. Um, but there's a concern about the assumption that you can create your own look. So we shall see. That is manifestation. To manifest or not manifest, that is the question. Okay. Not so overwhelming, is it? Never mind. Let's take some sobering news about a County Cork retail institution. J.P. Moran's menswear. Now, I've never been to J.P. Moran's menswear. I've never bought as much as a sock from J.P. Moran's menswear. But I do appreciate the fact that they have been there uh, for 137 years. You can imagine the history of a shop like that um, in, in, in the heart of Charleville. And it's closing its doors after a century of tailoring. And the reason I mention it is because all over this country, in villages and towns, uh, north, south, east and west, there are beautiful family shops like this that I really hope don't close. Uh, and I know it's tempting to go to the big international chain. I do it myself, so I'm not being a hypocrite here. But wouldn't it be lovely if every now and again we just said, I could get the exact same thing from those guys that have been there for 120 years. Great family business, part of the community, not dragged in from Manhattan or Sweden or Germany. They're just good eggs making a book. <laughs> The part of the fabric of who we are, it's, it's called Shop Local and it could be, you know, what have we got, lovely cards in from designus.ie for Valentine's card, you know, it could be those or Lainey Kay as we often mention her too. If, if it's Valentine's Day, if it's something more important like an anniversary thing you go to, remember the Iron Jumpers, again, you know, all there's, there's great shops around the place selling them. Anyway. I'm sorry to hear about J.P. Moran's menswear. It was set up in 1886 after J.P. Moran cycled up from the bogs of South Kerry to open up this tailoring shop on the main street. And over the years, it proved a popular place for locals wanting to look dapper for a special occasion. Isn't that cute? A pillar of the local community. The store was well known for its uh, made-to-measure tailored suits and a wide range of European menswear. It was heavily involved in the locality. Uh, providing support to Charleville Rugby Club and others all the way up to the senior level. So I'm sorry to hear about that and thanks to Cork Bio for bringing that to our attention and I wish the family and the business well and all our friends in Charleville well this morning. Shop local, folks. That's the message. Let's end today's newsings on a, well, odd note. If you remember Mr Blobby from TV, as I do, for whatever reason, it was a guy in a bonker suit that I can't even begin. You have to look it up. Mr. Blobby, just to have a picture of him. 
And he used to, he didn't even speak. He just like, blah, 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 blah. And he was a catastrophe. He bumped into things. He knocked things over. And I cannot tell you why, but I thought he was hilarious. I found it funny. I should not find it funny. I should not find something so juvenile, so puerile, so infantile as Mr. Blobby funny. But I, he always made me laugh. And it's probably because I have a clumsy streak on occasion and I have been called Mr. Blobby on occasion around the set of The Late Late Show when I knock stuff over, especially very valuable things, which has happened. And they go, steady on, Blobby. And I go, OK, blob, blob, be careful. Anyway, Mr. Blobby's suit, somebody, no one wanted it when the show ended, no house party. And somebody tried to sell it for starting price of £39 sterling. It went viral, the fact that Mr. Blobby was for sale, essentially. One buyer kept coming back and it got to £62,000 sterling. And the bidding closed. And then the guy or the woman, whoever it was, pulled out and said, no, I don't really want it. Like, oh. So now the person said, Do you know, I'm not going to bother selling it. And now Mr. Blobby's suit or whatever you want to call it is um, taking it backstage. Oh, Mr. Blobby, how the mighty have fallen, eh? And on that bombshell, let's leave the newsings there for today. You're waiting for the bus. It's cold and wet. But you know at least you won't have long to wait because the real-time app is telling you the bus will be along in two minutes. Then, you can see where this is going, can't you? Then, as the appointed time arrives, the bus disappears from the app. And the next one is due in 25 minutes. You're mad as hell and you're not going to take it anymore. Today with Claire Byrne reporter Evelyn O'Rourke investigated the phenomenon of the ghost bus. Evelyn travelled to the square in Dublin's Tala to talk to people about those vanishing buses. Tuesday morning from 10 past 9 till 10 to 11 waiting on a late day. In this weather? Yeah, with a baby, freezing cold. At what time did you expect it to come out? If you there was one due at half nine, there was one due at ten to ten, there was one due at half ten. It never ten. came. And do you have one of those boards at the bus yeah, stop? And oh, what happens? It just uh, goes on and just comes off. It said it's going to be three minutes and then knocks off and doesn't come on. Somebody said they disappear? Yeah, they disappear, yeah. They come on and off when you feel like it. Somewhere on it's half seven and we wouldn't get a bus at the lady walk. Ten past eight, quarter past eight and eight then. And when you get on, what does the driver say? Not my fault, so it's not me. And has this got worse in recent months? Yeah, the last few weeks it's got terrible. Can't trust the board no, or the information? No, can't trust the board or the information at all, you can't. And you were helping an old lady at the bus stop as well? Yes. I had to give her the baby's blanket to put around her leg. She was literally frozen. Got yeah. Baby and an older person freezing yeah. at the bus stop yeah. and no bus. Like the poor woman, she was like, I can't get a taxi. And you kept saying it was coming? Yeah. What do you think? It's ridiculous. Like, the them 27s come every 10, 15 minutes. And the same in Valley Fairman, the G81s and G2s come every 10, 15 minutes. There's no need for them to be coming that quick. But the buses routes around, but like less buses on some routes, and that's what you need to do, I think. Two minutes on a Oh, yeah, so you're looking science as two minutes, yeah. yeah. Then it goes up to three minutes. Then it goes back to two minutes. Then it goes back to three minutes. All the time, though. Yeah. What route do you use a lot? 27. And it happens on the 27? Yeah. Have you been waiting longer than you thought? Yeah. And this is all about five and ten minutes. So a journey that was supposed to start maybe in five minutes, it takes another ten minutes to get going. Yeah, I ran over from here to get to the 27 and the pulled off. And has this been going on for ages or has it got worse recently? It got worse, I think. The traffic and all, you know what I mean? 54A, 77A. And where do they go? Killinarden. So you're here at Tala Centre. So how many stops have that been? I must have missed one. <laughs> you just missed one. How long to the next one? Well, 77A is due. Okay, so you can hop between the two minutes, of them. Yeah. That's up on the board and you trust that that'll come? 
Uh, most of the time, no. Not all the time. I'm just talking to people about buses disappearing off signs. That is a real problem. It's unbelievable, it really is. So you plan your appointments around it? I do, yeah. And then and what then happens? It comes up three minutes, five minutes, eight minutes, and then back to 15 minutes. It was 10 past nine you left your house? Yeah, and uh, 10 past 10 on the side of the river with the breeze coming from the mountains. It you were there over an hour? Yeah. Hey, so I will or won't I? Do I leave? And as soon as I leave, it can come. Yeah, you're that fed up waiting there, and that's constant. How frustrating is it? It is very frustrating because the 77s are three at a time coming from up that end, but down the other end, you could be an hour waiting for it. An hour? Yeah, I have done an hour, especially down my end. At Old Bond there now, it's constantly changing from a few minutes back to jumping back. Your blood pressure is sky high all the time. I'd be better off to make up my mind when I leave the house to walk all the way up Seskin View and see what comes on Old Bond Road because you have three buses there. It's unbelievable. Frustrated commuters there speaking to Evelyn O'Rourke and Tala and as I said Sarah Burns, news reporter with the Irish Times is here and Sarah you've been writing about this now you wrote a long piece a couple of months ago and you were telling me there when you walked in during the ad break that people are still getting in touch with you about this issue. Yeah absolutely um, I still get emails from people with screenshots of the Dublin bus app or the TFI app saying the last two buses in a row haven't showed up you know this is still a problem. Um, in fairness I I had understood that the problem wasn't as bad as it was last year that the Dublin Commuter Coalition had said to me it has improved and the commuters had said to me it had improved slightly but that they were still experiencing these ghost or uh, phantom buses as mm-hmm. people call them. And you have first-hand experience of this as well because you use the buses. Yes, I use the bus regularly so it was funny after we ran that big piece in November I remember I was getting the bus home and there wasn't one due for 10 minutes so I just started walking and you know you just start walking to the next stop and the time kind of stands still and then the bus just I stopped halfway and and the bus disappeared off the screen. And then I said, OK, I'll wait for the next bus. And then when that bus eventually came, it was full of people and that just whizzed by me. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, so the problem still um, exists. The real-time information that we see on those screens at the bus stop, how is that put together? Yeah, so basically the real-time information that we get on our phones and that's there on the street signs, it gets its data from AVL systems, which is the automatic um, vehicle locator systems. And each of the bus operators have their own AVL system. And the AVL system basically uses GPS software to sort of track a bus's progression along a route and it will generate this um, predicted time as to when it should arrive at a stop. So the National Transport Authority said to me, it was around October, that there had been a number of complaints about um, inaccuracies with the real-time information. And they said primarily this was down to two things. The first was that there was a technical fault with the street displays and they put a fix in place in October and there were subsequent fixes in November and December. But the other issue, and I think this is the problem that we're still facing at the moment, is there is um, an increase in the cancellation of bus services due to a lack of bus drivers. Mm -hmm. And when a bus service is cancelled, basically the onus is on the bus operator to manually remove that from the real-time information system. They have to remove that. But um, what's, it seems like they're not removing that. And when it's not removed, it, um, it the real-time information system reverts automatically then to the scheduled timetable. So it will go to it and say, yes, the number nine bus is still due to leave the terminus at 2pm when in fact 
the bus is in the garage That's and it's not crazy leaving. because you're either working off real time GPS or you're not and you revert back to a timetable where there's no bus running. That's nonsensical stuff. Yeah and now in fairness to the NTA they are currently in the process of um, procuring a single AVL system that all the bus operators would use and it would have more up-to-date technology and they said hopefully it would be more accurate for commuters and it would just be easier if there was one system that we're all sort of running off. Um, So a contract for that is due to be awarded this year but they said it might take around 18 months for it to be Mm -hmm. rolled out. Irish Times news reporter Sarah Burns talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the very frustrating problem for commuters of ghost buses. This afternoon's Live Line kicked off with discussion of this year's St. Patrick's Day Parade, which features ticketed seating, which is very expensive and mostly sold out. Joe Duffy spoke to Lisa first. People like standing at the parade. Why would you want to sit at the parade for 250 quid? Hiya, Joe. Um, Joe, I I think the whole thing is absolutely appalling. Um, This business of the team being, you know, we are one and unification... But sure, they're segregating people immediately with that price. Well, we are not one because I can't afford that. You know, you're one if you're the one. If you're the one who has two hundred and fifty quid ahead plus booking fee plus donation, you're the one. Well, you're. Well, do you not want stands at all? At all? No, I I won't attend it. Um, I did when the kids were small, but um, I have to say, Joe, even if I won the lotto in the meantime. There's absolutely no way I'd hand that money over uh, for a ticket to, to the parade. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, turning the parade into a money-making racket, that's horrible. That, that's just not nice. I'd love to know how so many were sold out before they were even released. So, again, we're not one. Well, we put, these questions, we put these questions to the, the organisers. Um, they were on everywhere this, yesterday, rightly so, but we... Can't seem to get them on today. But anyway, we will uh, look for an answer. Where you, you want to know is uh, when were the other 16 stands put up for sale? Now, maybe I didn't look up the website last week. Did you? Maybe the, maybe the website was open before the launch, which often, happens, which often happens. Which often happens. But Lisa, when, when uh, I suspect your voice, you're much younger than I am, but it's only, it's only recently that they put up grandstands. They always had a viewing stand for Eamon de Valera in my day. But they never, um, they never had grandstands where you where you paid in. Is it is yeah, it the payment you object to, or the fact that there is grandstands, or they're so expensive? I think that you know grandstands. If they raffled tickets off for the likes of a good charity, you know, maybe Oscars Kids Club or Laura Lynn, very deserving charities, and um, terminally ill children, all of that, raffled them off, and you know. Um, then I might, I definitely wouldn't pay two hundred and fifty euro, but I'd certainly give a, a, a good donation if it was for something like that. But I'd love to know like, where is all that money going to? What is, what's it for? Who's getting the money? Well, I presume it's expensive for on a parade. Now I know so, a lot of the the festival the festival activities up in Collins Barracks, which is the main location there near Euston Station. Um, a lot of the activities are pay in, obviously. But remember, we were the only capital city in the world on New Year's Eve, to have a, a, an event that you had to pay into, a public event. The fireworks couldn't be seen unless you paid in to see Westlife. And they made yeah. a, they made every effort to make sure the fireworks could not be seen unless you paid in. But we were the only city in the world that had a pay-in New Year's Eve uh, celebration. 
and and there wasn't there wasn't a ruffle. But it feels now, Joe, like they're privatizing, you know, events. What I mean, what happened to all this business of looking after the um, frontline workers when the parade kicked off again? Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Them. What are you saying? Maybe a hundred tickets for for a lottery for front frontline workers. Yeah, or, or for children, you know, vulnerable children or terminally ill children. Give them a chance to sit and look at the parade. Children who are stuck in hospital all year or remember, in well, hospital. Now, remember, the RTE coverage uh, with Blahnet and Desi is second to none. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, by the way, the principal funders of the parade, you're right, it is. it seems to be well funded if you go through there. Uh, the Government of Ireland, that's you. Falter yeah. Ireland, that's you. Dublin City Council, that's you. Um, RTE, that's you. If you pay your your li- TV license fee, that's you. Uh, Dublin Airport, that's mostly you. The Museum, National Museum of Ireland, that's you. Uh, Irish Ferries, that's not you. Waterways Ireland, that is you. Um, and the list goes on. There's a, a official partners KN. I don't know who who is KN. It's just a logo. Irish Independent, that's not you. FM 104, that's not you. Irish Central, which is a magazine. Bulmers, the alcohol. Now you get people giving out about alcohol sponsors. Bulmers are the alcohol sponsor, so to speak. Um, so Didn't even think that was allowed anymore. Alcohol sponsors for an event for children's parade. That seems ridiculous. It's for kids, isn't it, Joe? Well, not all of it. No, if you look at the, you look at the events up in the festival quarter... Um, on that begins obviously on Thursday the sixteenth, um, mm. and Friday the seventeenth. I think um, one of them. I think it's one of the days. Anyway, I'll, I'll go through the um, through the uh, different events. Um, but anyway, each day is different. But each day you pay in to Collins Barracks um, Festival Quarter Nights, um, uh, fire stunning lighting display. 6 p.m. daily, strictly over 18s, uh, food village, bars, etc. Festival quarter days are very, you know, Disney cinema and all that carry on. Um, and they're trying to cater for everybody, aren't they? No. No one they put price tags on, Joe. I, I'm one of 10 kids. And St. Patrick's Day Parade was, if you were lucky, you got your lump of shamrock and a green ribbon in your hair. And we mm. all got the bus in and we stood usually on top of each other to try and see. And it was a lovely day out. It was great. Great crack. And even if it was bitter cold, we went anyway. Um, and, and it was enjoyable family day out. And now it, it, that innocence is gone from it. There was no price tag. There was no barrier to pay in anywhere and nothing like that. And I think it should have been left that way. But I'd love to know where all this money is going. If the public purse is paying for it, is it going back to us? Or where's the money going? That's caller Lisa asking questions about this year's St. Patrick's Day Parade on this afternoon's Live Line. The Australian author Thomas Keneally, best known for his Booker Prize winning novel Schindler's Ark, filmed by Steven Spielberg as Schindler's List, joined Ryan Tuberty in studio this morning. We'll pick up the conversation as Ryan brings in the origins of Keneally's most famous work. Your trip to the luggage shop in 1981, where you met Leopold Pfefferberg, uh, do you look back on that now, Tom, as cosmic, as chance, as fate? 
or just another episode in life? Well, we know that everything has to be chance. You believe, yeah, that, of course. But it almost makes you think of destiny because here's this Australian trier of a novel, T-R-Y-E-R, of a novelist, and he's given one of the great stories of the earth, of redemption and all the rest of it, and rescue. And it's not a big enough story to alter history, certainly. But the great thing I noticed about... Oscar that day uh, that I first heard the story from Leopold Pfefferberg, who who ran a leather goods store. Um, obviously, you were buying a case uh, from Mr. Pfefferberg and he, you explained to him that you were in town uh, as a writer uh, for those reasons. And he said, ah, I have a story for you. I mean, was it that simple? It was that simple Good because life. I had a delay on my Australian card. I bought this... And cards were just in. This is nearly my first purchase. And there was a delay by the banking company calling Sydney to find out if I... if convictism had a lasting effect (laughs) upon me. (laughs) Is this guy legit? Okay. And uh, it was then that Paul Deck said, uh, you know, I was saved in the Holocaust by uh, a Nazi, Uh, but although he was a Nazi, he was Jesus Christ. But although he was Jesus Christ, he was not a saint. He was all all joking, all screwing, all black marketeering. Oscar Schindler. <laughs> and a very good summary, actually, I thought of very. the story. And he led me out the back where his wife, who was a shire woman, she just died last year at the age of 100. And um, she wanted to see Trump fall because she thought Trump was the beginning of of what she'd seen in in Germany. That's extraordinary. And uh, she had been a medical student at the time. Her career ended. She was put in a ghetto in Lwów and then moved to Krakow and she met Poldek, who would have said to her, darling, you are, what he used to say, you're, the camera would love you and therefore so must I. <laughs> Stuff like that, old-fashioned middle European So he brings you to, to the back. <laughs> if it works, it works. So he brings you to the back of the shop and says, let me and, show and you this. And there is Mila and she's attending to repairs and he has a couple of filing cabinets full of Schindleriana that he put together when Schindler was alive. There are pictures in there that you wouldn't believe, pictures that the world didn't have then of concentration camps that were taken by a, an Austrian manager inside Poirshov. And, of course, various testimonies and the list. And you look at the list and there is Poldek uh, Pfefferberg, and I think he's described as a Schleicher, which I think is a welder. I think it's Slicer, I'm pretty sure. It's a word like that. And then she's described, this former medical student, as a metal arbiter. She's never arbited. She never worked with metal in her life, but she has become a metal worker. And you have these two vivid, a quiet woman and a loud man, these two vivid folk in front of you who are in the fullness of their life, they're middle-aged, and you think, what is it about you that killing you was essential to Western civilization? The people who were after you wanted to kill you because you were a virus on Western civilization. Let, yet here you are selling 
nice cases and purses and stuff like that, and you don't seem to be killing Western culture as you stand here. (laughs) And that was the first time to see someone on a what is supposed to be a death list and then try to work out why they were on it. That's the first time I'd ever had that experience. And I never had such a powerful sense that the anti-Semitism was in our culture and was, but it was an unnecessary hysteria. It was... A contagion. It was like, yes, and... and, uh, so you meet people like this and you think, why did was your death so important to Europeans who are far more refined me, than me? As I said earlier, the hillbillies of, of the Western world, yes. many of us descendants of convicts, and uh, uh, my wife, a descendant of a ribbon man from East Cork who was sent at 24 to Australia for life, and... Uh, why is she there and why were they there? It all seemed to raise an important question and why the children had to die for the sake of Western civilization. And I found that astonishing and no other story gave me a sense of every aspect of the Holocaust. Spielberg's little business confronted every aspect of the Holocaust, from the confiscation of homes and businesses to the ghettoization of people waiting round up to work camps and then the final process of destruction. And I think it's because that story looks at the Holocaust in human terms, reduces it to human terms, uh, is what attracted me. I believe it was Stalin, who said during the Ukrainian famine in the 1930s that one man's death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. He was correcting a a bureaucrat, I believe, who said there's a tragedy, six to ten million people dying in Ukraine. He said that's not a tragedy, that's a statistic, an individual it's a, chilling, an individual chilling thing. When you think all these years later of your book Schindler's Ark, which became, of course, the film Schindler's List, what did that book do? Where does that book stand in your Well, it head seems or? to come. I can understand why people... Why was I the dumb goy who got the chance to write the book, not quite knowing what I was doing, mm. what I was releasing? Because, for example, I've found across the world that the movie in particular, but the book to begin with, started loosening the tongues of middle-class successful uh, Jewish survivors all over the world. So they started to talk to their children. You know, they might have said, you know, we were once in a concentration crack. Watch out for those Gentile people. They're pretty... (laughs) They still don't like us. They might have another whack at us. And... um, uh, that um, is a terrible thing to have to tell children. Uh, so a lot of them tried to soften the blow to their children that in the Christian world they'd always have their haters because they had not accepted the prophecy of Christ or the divinity of Christ. You know, since the movie came out after following your book, 
um, that 52,000 interviews were conducted for the Spielberg, um, found, the Shoah Foundation. Shoah Foundation, exactly. Yeah. Uh, for, and 56 countries represented in those interviews. That, to me, would suggest an important legacy from what you achieved, but because that's a gift to history. That is incredible. If if we had a website like that for the famine, a website like that for oh, the Oh, we can talk about that in a moment, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, let's just wrap that up, if you like, by saying, first of all, thank you for that book because it was I, so important. I knew not what I did, mate. Yeah, yeah. You seem very <laughs> humble about it, uh, Tom, as well. Though. I have good grounds. People died to make this story. People died to make this story. The very humble, very genuine Thomas Keneally talking this morning to Ryan Tuberty about his most famous book, Schindler's Ark. Next week marks the centenary of the birth of the Irish writer Brendan Behan. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, historian Dermot Ferreter spoke to Claire about the short life of the famous author. Going into the Borstal in many ways was the making of Brendan Behan. He was quite lucky. Um, he was only 16. He headed off on a solo mission. You know, typical Brendan Behan to go off on a solo mission as a 16-year-old to bomb the Liverpool docks. Uh, and he cut quite a farcical figure in relation to that. But he did end up in Borstal rather than prison because of his tender years. And it's interesting, the Home Office files on Behan's time there were, were only opened in the early years of this century and they did reveal the effect of his charm. He had quite an influence on Cyril Joyce who was the governor in Hollisey Bay, the borstal where he was and he encouraged him. He encouraged him because clearly there was um, a fiercely independent imagination and creative impulse uh, at the heart of Behan even, even at that stage and it was recognised and it was encouraged on the grounds that this would be a step towards his rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. And he spends three years there um, but he hasn't quite matured And in 1941, when he returns to Dublin, uh, he gets involved in the IRA again in a very serious uh, episode where shots are fired at a a guard. And he ends up being incarcerated. Um, And he was lucky that he didn't get the death penalty at that stage because the state is really clamping down on the IRA at that point. But he spends time in Mountjoy and in the Curragh. And again... I mean, that must have been a lengthy sentence, was it, Jeremy? It was a lengthy sentence. He was sentenced to 14 years. He only ended... He got out in 1946. He ended up serving about five, I think. And there was an amnesty in 1946 under the Fianna Fáil government at that time. Uh, so he benefited from that. So there was a degree of luck there as, as well. And it was difficult, again, for him, obviously, coping with that incarceration. But also, he had at that stage elders who were encouraging him, mentors, people like Sean O'Fallon and Padre O'Donnell, who was a veteran socialist Republican uh, and also a writer. And again, they recognised that there was a talent there that need to, needed to be brought to the fore. But the authorities made it quite difficult at that stage. So he wasn't able to exercise the kind of artistic liberty that he would have enjoyed. Was he writing in the Borstal in England? Was he writing when he yeah. was in Mount Joy? Do you know what's very interesting about The Borstal Boy? The Borstal Boy is eventually published in 1958 as a novel and it's regarded as his masterpiece, but it's gestating from really the late 1930s into the early 1940s. Sean of Whelan's The Bell magazine actually published a piece by Beacon in 1942, which is about the beginnings of his Borstal experience. So it's obviously building um, from a very early stage and it, it's a very long drawn out process, mm-hmm. but it was worth the wait. So released then from Mountjoy onto the Curragh, then released... 
what happened then? Where did he go? What That's was he about doing? That's getting serious about being a writer. You know, he has to leave that IRA stuff behind him, not necessarily his sympathies, but he wants to become a writer. Now, the class dim- dimension is very important here. He feels the odds are stacked against him as a working class writer. And as he saw it, Irish cultural life was largely concerned at that stage with rural affairs. And as he put it, he was not interested in writing about the hungry bog or the scarcity of crumpet, as he put it. And that was a dig, perhaps, at the poetry of Patrick Cavanagh. And he said, I'm a city rat. Sean O'Casey is in Devon. James Joyce is dead. Um, So he felt that as a representative of the Dublin working class, the odds were stacked against him. Was he right? Uh, In many ways he was. He actually went to the Gaeltacht for a period and he wrote what became a very well-known poem, Os Gaeilge. Um, which is about a, a Dubliner lamenting the Blasket Islands. And he also demonstrated a flair for writing sensitively in the Irish language at that stage. But then he ends up in Paris. Paris is the place to go. That, of course, being such a, a creative hub. Uh, and he does encounter very famous writers like Camus and Sartre and, of course, Beckett, uh, who was in Paris at that stage. Um, and How was he surviving? He was surviving because he was able to make a living as a journalist. Now, it's not a very secure living, but he has already developed a particular style. Uh, He's a raconteur. He's somebody who can talk on radio and he can write. He can fire off uh, journalistic articles, pieces, um, and he is using that to pay the day-to-day bills whilst creating space for himself to work. But the drinking is getting in the way, even at that stage. You know, the idea is that he'll get up early in the morning and work very hard and then uh, the pubs will open. Uh, So, you know, that's the routine that's established. But he's doing okay at that stage. Mm -hmm. So from Paris then, in... I'm not sure what year he went to Paris, but 1954 was when he his work first reached the stage. Is that it right? It all really happens for Behan between 1954 and 1958. You know, that is the really phonetic The golden period, age. The golden period. And of course, it's the period, golden period of a very short life. He died at the age of 41. Um, and it's originally the queer fellow. And this becomes a very topical play. It's staged originally in the tiny but innovative Pike Theatre in Dublin that's run by Carolyn Swift and Alan Simpson. And it really is a small theatre, but it's, it's daring, that theatre. And they're staging a very edgy play because this is topical. This is about the death penalty. This is about the vicissitudes of prison life for a prisoner awaiting execution. Uh, And it's about humanising that dilemma and it's about social exclusion and it's about poverty and all of those themes. But it's Joan Littlewood when she gets her hands on it in in London, the famed theatre director. um, She brings it of course, a huge profile and a huge fame. From what I read, she was very influential on him and in honing what he had written. Massively, yeah. Honing is an interesting word because some scholars would argue that she, in many respects, diluted the originals, particularly when it comes to The Hostage which is, is the next big play, what was on Gael in the Irish language that was staged in Undamer. He gave it to Gael Lynn. And again, that's about him taking the business of his heritage seriously and writing the Irish language seriously. But when Joan Littlewood gets that uh, and produces it in London, it really becomes a music hall variety show. And it's got satire and campness and risque references to topical controversies, including homosexuality. Uh, it becomes something very different. Scholars, uh, interestingly, people like John McCourt and John Brannigan, who've written extensively on Behan in, in recent times, uh, have excavated that uh, adaptation and the extent to which it diverted so much from, from the mm-hmm. original work that it but was But then I suppose different. if she did that, 
she made him successful because otherwise we mightn't have heard about Brendan Behan had she not been involved and, and carried out Absolutely that Absolutely right. I mean, he achieved international fame and he was being interviewed. He was interviewed on the BBC, famously Malcolm Muggeridge interviewing him. He's becoming um, Brendan of broth of a boy fame. Mm-hmm. He becomes a character. He becomes a storyteller. Some would argue that he becomes a stage Irishman uh, in that process because that's a very uh, respectful Expected medium television at that stage. You know, it's very conservative uh, and he's ribald and there's a lack of reverence there and there's great wit on display a lot of the time uh, but there's also public drunkenness and that causes outrage and that feeds in then to the notoriety and the fame uh, of Behan but it also of course puts him on the circuit and that's a problem. Let's... Um, uh Dave Fanning was here last week talking about the Chelsea Hotel and he mentioned his time there, Brendan Behan's time there. And I think we have a clip. Uh, this is when the hostage was brought to New York and this is a snippet of Brendan Behan and he was asked why there aren't many Behans in New York. And here's what he said. I could give you three reasons for that. The reason the old lady in, in Ireland gave me why there, why there weren't many Dublin people in America, she said... Uh, he said uh, they don't have the they don't have the money to go there. They wouldn't work if they got there. And thirdly, she said they wouldn't be let in. The late Brendan Meehan, whose centenary is coming up next week, in a recording played on this morning's today with Claire Byrne, where Claire discussed Behan with Dermot Ferreter, professor of modern history at UCD. Once, there were as many women named Bridget in Ireland as there are ways of spelling Bridget. But now the name has fallen from favour. And on the eve of St Bridget's Day, Ray Darcy was joined by the Irish Times' Ronan McGreevy to tease out why this might be so. The CSO uh, published uh, uh, babies' names every year, the statistics relating to babies' names going back to 1964. So we have, what, 50, 59 years, almost 60 years of baby names. And uh, what we've discovered is that uh, the name Bridget has fallen massively out of favour with the Irish population to the extent that the traditional spelling of the name, which is uh, B-R-I-G-I-D, which is what St. Bridget's name is, there were so few uh, babies called uh, Bridget in the years 2014 to 2017 and in 2021 that the CSO won't actually say how many there were, except that there was less than three. So uh, it was a matter of data protection, because if there's only one uh, child, say, in 2021 called Bridget, then that child can be identified. Right. So it's top secret. Well, it's, it, it, the, 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 the most popular spelling of the name Bridget, B-R-I-D-G-E-T, which yes. is sort of more of the phonetical spelling. I mean, that's still around, but uh, it, it has fallen off the cliff as well in terms of names. Um, going back to 1964, there was 595 babies born that year called Bridget, nice. and 2021, the figure was 20. So yeah. um, it's really fallen off the charts, as have different iterations, of course. Uh, of the name, uh, I mean, most of us have an auntie Bridie or a grandmother called Bridie or whatever. There was, there's also uh, breed, uh, uh, breed. All these type of uh, sort of derivations of of the word Bridget have also uh, declined in popularity. Uh, and they don't group the different spellings together. They give separate. No, so it's all yes. different spellings. But yeah. but even when you look at them all together, you wouldn't get more than maybe thirty or forty uh, forty names, maybe fifty with. with 
variation to the name Bridget, which is quite extraordinary when you think about it. Um, when 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 Bridget is our our the patroness of Ireland, so to speak. Yes, it'll be interesting to see if her renewed popularity because of the bank holiday will increase the number of Bridgets next year. Yes, well, I mean, uh, it's it, it, I, I was doing some sort of deep diving there before I came on to have a look at other names. Bridget seems to be going the way of all those type of old saint names that people were called, like John and Patrick and Michael and Anne and Rose and all these mm. type of names that that's most of us were called back in the day. <laughs> I was looking there that it's it, I was looking at some figures there back in 1964. There were 3,471 girls. Uh, called Mary, who were right. born in in 2021. That figure was 41, mm. and for uh, uh, this really made me almost fall off my chair. There were only six Anne's uh, born in Ireland in 2021, which what? is the last year for figure six. Yes, six A N N E. There's there's a few called A N N, but only six called Anne. All these names have gone completely off the radar. I mean, even. Plain old Patrick back in 19... That was the top name, boy's name in Ireland until 1984. And in just go back to 1964, the first year, there were 2,235 Patricks. In 2021, there was only 266. One-tenth. And 198 yeah. Johns yeah. as well in 2021. So um, all those kind of... Uh, all those kind of common names that we all knew and uh, growing up, they've all kind of vanished um, I don't know why, but uh, they, they, they've fallen out of favour. Uh, we'll never have names like that, that, you know, three or four thousand people will call their children again. You no. know, because they, there's, they're, they're so disparate now, the names, and, and there's so many of them, and people make up names. What's, what's Ronan? Is Ronan, where's, what's the history uh, of that? Ronan's kind of a, it's, it's, it wasn't, I was born in the 70s, it's not a very common name in the 70s. Uh, it's, it's grown in popularity uh, maybe because of Ronan Keating. When I was growing up, the only other Ronan I knew was the golfer Ronan Rafferty. Right. There's a lot more of them now. Um, so yeah, it's sort of um, it's it, it's not a very popular name, but it's certainly more popular than it used to be when I was when yeah. I were a lad. You know, they, they were saying that you don't hear many Garys anymore upstairs. No, no, there's Gary. an awful lot of names. You can almost you can almost uh, you can almost tell the, what decade they yes. were born in by their by their name by the names. You know, I mean, you don't hear children called Wayne anymore either. That's Wayne. another name that's no. come yeah completely no. out of vogue. Yeah, um, Gary is a very 60s, 70s name. I was just thinking about that name there. Very few children nowadays are called Gary. Um, yeah. So, but this is more historic. This is a historical decline in terms of. I mean, if you go back centuries, people were called Patrick and and Bridget and Mary and John and all that. And and, and it's only been really yeah. in the last fifty years that all these very common names have they're fascin- vanished. Really, names are fascinating, and and the history of them is is, is even more fascinating. I, I was reading last week that in Vietnam, forty percent of the population share the same surname. Yeah, uh, Nguyen or Nguyen. It's N G U Y E N, I think, um, and that goes back to the last emperor of uh, Vietnam. And people took that name because they thought, you know, they'd be seen as better people. As I suppose if, if, if they had the same name as the emperor, but forty yeah. percent—that's not going to make it special. Ray Darcy talking to Ronan McGreevy of the Irish Times this afternoon about the decline of the name Bridget in Ireland. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, Wednesday is the closing date for CAO applications. And Claire Byrne was joined this morning by Donica O'Mahony, career guidance teacher at Loretto Stevens Green, who also runs the Leaving Cert Guidance Instagram page. 
So tomorrow's deadline is for anybody who hasn't opened up their account just yet. So if you haven't opened up your account, go and do it. It only takes about five, ten minutes and will cost you 45 euros. So you've missed the early bird there, the 30 euro uh, initially. Um, also, any mature applicants must apply by tomorrow. So their application has to be done by tomorrow. They can't apply using the late application that opens up on okay. the 6th of March. So even if you're just thinking about it as a mature applicant, just do it. Just do it for the sake of 45 euros, just mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. So we have here and dare applicants as well so if you're applying for here or dare or both you better explain now what they are okay so here is the higher education access route so that's for students from disadvantaged areas economically disadvantaged areas Uh, they can apply uh, for kind of a a reduction in points if they get here and then dare is disability access route into education and there's a list of disabilities that students can apply under and again if they're successful they get onto the course uh, for reduced points as well so tomorrow is very relevant for a lot of people then across the board isn't yeah. it and then anybody applying for a restricted course must be in by tomorrow as well so restricted is anything with additional entry criteria like the HPAT for medicine like a portfolio for art and design course things like that Okay now genuine order of preference and we talk about this uh, so much every time we talk about the CEO put down what you really want to do yeah. at the top of that list but it's always worth saying because people second guess them particularly when themselves uh, when the deadline is coming up they tend to put in late changes because they think they're not going to get what they want Yeah you should be more measured and calculated than just last minute making a change. So genuine order of preference is really important. What you're telling the CEO is if I meet the entry requirements and I have the points I want to be offered this course first and if I don't get that course number one on my list offer me the second one and so on right down to number yeah. 10 so a little uh, kind of formula I use with my students is I would always say put three dream courses down so forget about the points just you know if points weren't an issue what would you pick then we're looking at about five probable courses so I've been in around this amount of points um, during my Christmas test my mocks uh, my summer exams and I'm probably going to be in around that so th- I'll look at five courses in that point area and then we'd look at two backup courses so if I'm a 400 point student that I would have two backup in around 300 points or less just in case. What do you say to the students who don't have dream courses? who just don't know what they want to do. Yeah, it's very difficult. And and uh, we were kind of just talking off air, like some students mature at different times. Um, so take your time uh, to chat with your parents, chat with your guidance counsellor, see what the next step is for you. It might necessarily have to be college. Uh, take your time making the choice, you know, because there can be financial repercussions if you go into the wrong course and then want to do first year again. So just be careful that you're making the right choice, even if that means kind of taking a year out, maybe doing a PLC or whatever the case may be. But take your time with the decision. Yeah, I think take your time is really good advice because it's a lot to ask of 17, 18, 19 year olds to have made decisions about the rest of their life, you know, yeah. and, what, and what that potentially might look like. And as a society, I think we're, we, we're crazy for the CEO. Uh, I would often um, help students take a year out. Maybe students who are very talented musicians or talented athletes, they might take the year out between leaving certain college to really give uh, that career a go. Uh, and often we don't do that here. We don't push that here. We're going to push in college more. Yeah. Take a year out to take a break. Yeah. as well. It's you know, that's the yeah. pressure of, of yeah. the leaving start. Now, I have questions flying in front of me here. Are there apprenticeship programmes available in finance companies and how do I access information on that? There is apprenticeships available in finance. There's a, apprentices in insurance, uh, recruitment. So, um, very, very recently, uh, Minister Simon Harris uh, started the free phone apprenticeship hotline. So you can call this number between 12 and 6 uh, and between Monday and Friday. So the number is 1800 
0800-794-487. So if you are interested in an apprenticeship, you can ring Freephone, it's Freephone as well, uh, to ask any information about it. And of course, the website is brilliant, apprenticeship.ie, where they often advertise uh, for apprentices in different areas. That's great advice. So apprenticeship.ie, and would you just give me the number there again? Yeah, so it's 1800-794-487, Monday to Friday, 12pm to 6pm. All right, there's your answer, and thank you for that question. This one, my son deferred a course at TU Dublin last year. How does he go about securing a place for this year? Or if he changes his mind, how does he do that? Well, if, if he deferred, he should be able to go straight back into that course. Exactly. So what you have to do if you defer is you could have to reapply to the CEO again. Oh, do you? Okay. And you only put that course down uh, and then you're guaranteed. So even if the points go up and you don't have the points, even if the entry requirements change and you don't have those, you'll still be offered that place. But if you start playing around at it in different courses, the college don't necessarily have to offer you that. And you'll get the offer in round A, round A, round zero, and then round one is your traditional uh, CEO offers. All right. Um, just make sure that you get your application in, though, yeah. even though even though he deferred from last year. Now, Kevin has completed the CAO application for a Ukrainian second level student that they're hosting. University entry will hopefully be based on the Ukrainian secondary exams. But I can't figure out how CAO applicants, where English is not their first language, complete the English language aptitude exam or get the English certific- certification to get into university here this year. Do you have the answer to that? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways you can do it. So there's language schools all around Ireland. You can go in and uh, you can sign up to do one of these exams. There's so many of these exams that the universities accept. You have Cambridge, TOEFL, uh, IELTS. Uh, but one we kind of mentioned the last day we were chatting was Duolingo, uh, which you can do online. Yeah. Uh, it's one hour long and it's actually the cheapest by a long way. And a lot of universities accept this. Now, the standard of English will have to be pretty high. So you're talking about 130 out of 160, which is advanced level English, because you're going to be doing your undergrad, obviously, entirely through English. So you want to have a good level of English. Quite a big ask for someone coming from Ukraine there. That's Donika O'Mahony, career guidance teacher at Loretto Stevens Green, talking to Claire about CAO applications ahead of tomorrow's deadline. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Nilo Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.